This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Our scripture reading this morning is the Holy Gospel according to John, John 2, 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Odin was the god of wisdom, poetry, divination, and magic in Norse mythology. Maybe you aren't that familiar with Odin, but you do say his name every week. Did you know that? On Wednesday. Wednesday is from the Old English Wodnistag, Wodnistag, or Woden's Day. Woden's Day. So this Wednesday, maybe give a tip of the cap uh, to Odin. Around the fourth century, there was a king ruling in Uppsala. Uppsala is located uh, in Sweden and is home to Scandinavia's largest cathedral, Uppsala Cathedral. And uh, founded in 1477, Uppsala University is the oldest center of higher education in all of Scandinavia. And among many achievements, the Celsius scale for temperature was invented there. So a long uh, noted history there in Sweden and particularly in Uppsala. But in ancient times, Uppsala was the main pagan center of Sweden and the temple at Uppsala contained magnificent idols of the Norse gods, no doubt including Odin. So there was this king ruling in Uppsala, and his name was King On. I think I'm, hopefully I'm saying that right, King On, uh, A-U-N, King On. 
And he was reputedly a wise king who made sacrifices to the gods. He was not of a warlike disposition and preferred to live in peace, though you wouldn't want to be one of his sons. Because uh, when he turned 60 years old, in an attempt to live longer, he sacrificed his oldest son to Odin, who had promised that this would mean that he would live for another 60 years. Because you see, Odin wasn't just the god of wisdom, poetry, and magic, and so forth. He was also the god of death. The god of death. Well, according to legend, this sacrifice of his son to extend his life worked, and he tacked on 60 years to his life. Well, at the end of this 60-year extension, Odin told the king that, in fact, he would remain living as long as he sacrificed one of his sons every 10 years. You can keep this thing going for a while. And fortunately or unfortunately, he had 10 sons. He had 10 sons. And a condition of the deal uh, as well was that he had to name one of the Swedish provinces after the number of sons that he had sacrificed. So this cycle went on for some time, sad to say. And by the time On, King On, had sacrificed a son for the seventh time, he's getting very old now, he was so old that he could not walk but had to be carried on a chair. And when he had sacrificed a son for the eighth time, he could no longer get out of bed. And when he had sacrificed his ninth son, he was so old that he had to feed like a little child by sucking on a horn, a horn of an animal. That's how they fed children in those days. But now he was so old, he had to be fed in similar fashion. And after 10 more years, he wanted to sacrifice his 10th and final son and name the province of Uppsala the Ten Lands after his 10 sons nine of whom he had sacrificed to extend his own life. But the people uh, of Sweden refused to let him do it. He said, enough is enough. And so finally, he died. And he was buried in a mound at Uppsala. You can still visit this royal burial mound today in Sweden. And he was succeeded by his last son, Egil, or Egil. And so from that day in those parts, dying in bed of old age was called on's sickness. On sickness. Perhaps you've done something untoward to live so long. And King On was immortalized in an old Norse poem by the, co the court poet Theodolf. Again, this is a very old poem recounting uh, this story. In Uppsala town, the cruel king slaughtered his sons at Odin's shrine, slaughtered his sons with cruel knife to get from Odin length of life. He lived until he had to turn his toothless mouth to the deer's horn, and he who shed his children's blood sucked through the ox's horn his food. At length, fell death has tracked him down, slowly but surely in Uppsala town. So there's your Nordic history lesson. I know you were looking for that. And we might cringe at such stories of primitive religion, right? We hear that and think that sounds awful, absolutely awful. But I wonder if you've ever found yourself saying, God, 
I'll do anything you want if you will just fill in the blank. Have you ever found yourself praying like that? In college, it may have been, I'll go to church every week if you just get me through this organic chemistry exam. Later, it might be, I'll never lie again, God, if I can just get away with this one. Or in more serious matters, such as facing an illness to yourself or a loved one, we might promise God the sun, the moon, and the stars, if only God will make them well. You see, primitive religion persists. We imagine that God can be manipulated. We face often impossible, unchangeable circumstances and turn to the only one who presumably can set things right again. It's a common and very human response to difficulty to imagine that we can sort of incur uh, divine help, divine action on our behalf if we just perform the necessary act. Again, this kind of religion goes back a long ways. In Homer's Iliad, written in the mid-8th century before Common Era, BCE. So this now predates the story of King On by over 1,200 years, over 1,000 years. In the Iliad, sacrifice is used as a means of communication with the gods. It was a way of creating reciprocity between mortals and immortals and to generate divine goodwill. It was also a way, of course, to prop up the importance of those doing the sacrifices. And so in the Iliad, it's uh, King Agamemnon who is shown in this light. When he offers a sacrifice, it's recounted in such a way to show his social importance, his authority, and his, and his power. Look who I am, that I have such a close connection to the gods. And the poetic use of sacrifice in the Iliad, according to historian Sarah Hitch, is aimed at bringing out humanity's vulnerability and uncertainty, and as such, a desire to communicate with the gods. Humanity's vulnerability and uncertainty. Those things are as much a part of human experience now as they were all those centuries ago because we remain incredibly vulnerable and uncertain as well. And that's why primitive religion remains in business. We want to control things, especially when we feel out of control. God, I'll do this thing. If only you'll do that. In our text today, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem near the time of the Passover. The Passover, of course, recalls uh, Israel's final days in Egypt when the people of Israel sacrificed sheep and put blood on their doorposts to avoid the tenth and final plague, death of the firstborn. A sacrifice, we might note, offered to avoid something terrible happening like death. 
Now, over time, of course, sacrifices became an essential part of how the people of Israel related to God. These sacrifices were called korbanot, that's the plural, singular korban, korban, which means something which draws close. So we see right there in the definition of sacrifice, something which draws close. According to Rabbi Daniel Kurzain, the purpose of these sacrifices was right there in the title, to bring people closer to God. And now there were a group of people, as we know, uh, in the Hebrew called koanim, plural of kohen, priests. And they were the only ones allowed right, to make sacrifices to God, um, to bring the people closer to God. And there were three basic kinds of korbanot, or sacrifices, animals, grain, and money. Animals would be killed, grain would be burned, and money could be donated. And sometimes when you didn't have any animals to offer a sacrifice, grain or money could work as well. Or you could use the money to buy animals to then sacrifice, which of course is what's going on in our gospel text today in the temple grounds as people are gathering for Passover, so many pilgrims came from so far, they wouldn't be able to bring animals with them, so they needed to purchase them on site. And so the priests would offer these sacrifices, as we see through the Hebrew Bible, during uh, the evening, morning, and afternoon, and uh, especially on holy days and festivals. And Rabbi Daniel Kurzain notes that Exodus 19.22 tells us that priests uh, were called those who come close to the eternal, those who come close to the eternal, uh, showing that their job of offering sacrifices was to bridge that gap between humanity and God and to close the distance. And indeed, God tells Moses to build the sanctuary where the sacrifices are offered so that God can dwell among the people of Israel. And eventually that traveling sanctuary became a permanent installation at the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple became, as Jesus comes uh, on the scene, that site where God and humanity connected. The site where sacrifices of all kinds were offered and Passover, of course, being that uh, critical moment where the most pilgrims would show up from any time of year to Jerusalem, from all over uh, Judea, Galilee, and beyond. Uh, to join in the celebration, and Passover was when uh, the most sacrifices would happen, recalling and celebrating the exodus from Egypt. And so it would have, of course, been incredibly loud and busy with all of those animals, sheep, cattle, birds, lots of languages, tables where money, foreign currency could be exchanged, and so forth, vendors, all of this. Kind of a chaotic yet holy scene. And Jesus walks into, in our gospel text, this holiest of settings at this holiest of moments and performs what really is an incredible act. Verse 15 says, Having made a whip out of ropes, he ejected all from the temple with sheep and cattle, poured out the money, changers' coins, and overturned the tables. We've heard this story, right? We know it. We've heard it. But it's hard for us to bring to scale the thousands of animals we're talking about and the high number of people that we're talking about. Wes Howard Brook, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, notes that for a single 
person to drive out the thousands of sheep and cattle out of the temple precincts would have been an incredible and seemingly impossible thing to witness. Would have been unprecedented, unheard of, and incredible. An act of civil and religious disobedience. He's gone into the heart of their society, into the heart of their religion, and committed sacrilege. Verse 18 says, The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, this is often interpreted as Jesus becoming the new sacrifice that pleases God. Maybe even the new Passover lamb. And that now the new path to God is believing in Jesus' sacrificial action, Jesus' substitution for you on the cross, and only those who believe in that will go to heaven. It's often how the lens through which uh, this is all seen, interpreted, and understood. And let me just say right now that I reject that view. I reject that view. Because that presents an ugly view of God, right? Where God can only be appeased by blood. Where God is saying, I'm going to kill you, so great is my wrath, unless someone steps in on your behalf. And I don't think that's a biblical, let alone moral view of God. It is, in fact, a primitive view. What Jesus is saying is, I am going to show you the love of God. And that love is not achieved by you offering sacrifices, especially not a sacrificial system that's created hierarchies within society, which by that time, of course, no doubt it had. Priests had an incredibly elevated and privileged place in society, and it disadvantaged the poor who weren't able to offer what were seen as proper sacrifices, often as a substitute doves, the cheapest animal available. And so Jesus is saying love is not achieved through that kind of sacrificial system. But I think he's also saying even a perfectly egalitarian sacrificial system would also not achieve God's love because God's love simply is. And that love rejects the path of violence so much so that I, in fact, will walk into the machinery of violence, both religious and political, and embody nonviolence. Because that is a display of God's love. Jesus is helping us awaken from primitive religion. There is nothing gained by violence. God does not demand it. God cannot be manipulated by it. And God actually rejects it. And at this point, let me be very clear. I'm also not here dismissing Judaism as a, quote, primitive religion or saying that Christianity is better. 
all religious traditions have primitive elements and all have paths to what we might call a more uh, enlightened and nonviolent approach to God. In fact, Judaism itself contained the seeds for undoing sacrifice. Jesus is actually walking in a line of tradition of prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and others who decried the religious hierarchy that had developed, who gives voice to Yahweh saying things like this in Isaiah 57, you sacrificed your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. You have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? Even there, God is saying, do you think you can manipulate me? with offerings and sacrifices. And in the book of Hosea, as we read earlier, God says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, in ancient times, the sacrificial system did keep a certain amount of order in society, We feel like there's chaos and uncertainty, and here's something we can control. But God, even long before Jesus, was inviting humanity to evolve to a higher understanding. Now, it might be helpful to think of the Bible as an anthropological anthology. It's a lot. An anthropological anthology. In other words, a collection of stories about humans who are trying to awaken from primitive religion to discover the God of love and the love of God. And so a reminder for us, friends, this morning, we cannot earn God's love. That love already exists. And whatever pain you are feeling, God feels it too. And the longings you have for things to be set right in this world, even the anger you feel, we see that rage expressed in Jesus turning over tables and driving out animals. We often call this event the cleansing of the temple. But the Greek word used in the Gospel of John is exabalane, uh, from which we derive the word exorcise, exorcise. Jesus is exorcising violence and sacrifice from religion. He is throwing it out. And so must we, because primitive religion persists. We might imagine that if we give up enough during Lent, Things in our lives will turn out for the better. If we give up chocolate or Netflix or alcohol or swearing or whatever it might be, God will be pleased with us. If we can just lead a moral enough life, God will be pleased with us. Or if we can make a big enough promise, then God will come around to our side. But Jesus reminds us God is already pleased with us. God is already on our side. There is nothing we can do to earn God's love or favor. It simply is. And we must also reject the modern sacrificial system which shows up in our society in which the economy depends, 
quote-unquote, on the backs of the poor, in which the so-called peace of empire is preserved by violence, and we must repent of all of the ways in which we baptize all of that in the name of Jesus, which provides us with a good Lenten question. What would Jesus throw out today? Amen. And namaste. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.